Well, good morning, church. I'm glad to see you here this morning. As, as I know it's already been mentioned, I, I can't help but uh, think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine right now. I mean, on the Lord's Day, uh, we, you know, the church that I, uh, that I used to be a part of in Clayton, we were heavily involved in Ukraine. And so we had some sister churches there and, and involved in many partnerships in Ukraine. And, and so the, the church, praise God, is, is alive and well in Ukraine. The Lord is working and he is building his kingdom in Ukraine. Praise God for that. Um, but I know this morning, as, as many of them would be used to, to gathering in, in their buildings, and their buildings aren't as ornate as ours. And I know this is simple compared to many churches in the area and in our country, but um, it's not as ornate as ours, but they've been displaced. As, as missiles have made their way into their capital city, bombs have gone off, tanks have rolled in. There, there would be, for many, reason to panic. Reason to make excuses to not be who Christ has called them to be or to do what Christ has called them to do. But I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged this week by, by someone who gets it. And what I mean by gets it, he, he gets what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That is Yaroslav Slavic. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. No disrespect to the man. Because I couldn't respect him more. I'm just not an expert in, uh, I don't know how you pronounce P-Y-Z-H. We don't have that. In, the, in, in English. Regardless, he's the president of the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary. He says this. I read this to the preach team yesterday. When asked what the church is going to do, how will the church respond? How will Christians respond in Ukraine right now? He said, the church will go underground. We had that under the Soviet Union. The church did not forget what it means to be persecuted. We will rearrange, reorganize, and do what we always do. Preach the gospel. That, friends, that, friends, is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You want an example of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Look to the president of the Ukrainian Baptist Theological Seminary. Come suffering. Come persecution. Come the loss of a building. An air conditioning. Lose it all. We strive on. Why? Because knowing Christ is far better than anything this world has to offer, including preserving our life. And you know what? 
Making Christ known is far better than anything else that we could accomplish in this life. As Christ's name and his glory goes out into the world. We're going to talk about striving this morning. We're talking about striving, and I, and I know as, as I mentioned the word striving, some of, your, some of your heartbeat starts to increase a little bit, and your, your blood might start to boil a little bit, because, because if we're honest, the, the, the idea of striving gives some of us a little panic. We, we think that there's no room for striving in the Christian life, because because. Christ accomplished our salvation from beginning to end, and he did, didn't he? Amen, church? We believe that. We, we believe as a church that our salvation is accomplished only by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, making atonement for our sins through no effort of our own, through no work of our own, through no good deeds of our own. It's all Christ. And we, and we as a church believe this as, as well, that, that even our salvation, the desire for salvation didn't come from us, but it came from the fact that, that, that the Father predestined us for salvation before the foundation of the earth, and that we are regenerated, we are born again from above by the power of the Holy Spirit, that, that God in his sovereign choice chose us to be saved. We have no room to boast. None. And so we cherish that truth so greatly that sometimes when we, when we come to the text and, and, and we, we see the call to strive, where we see the call to work, where, where we see the call to kill sin, when we see the call to repent, we, we, we're confused. We struggle to understand what it means. This morning, I, I hope to unpack that idea a little bit of what it means to strive, to understand Christ, to love Christ, to worship Christ, to adore Christ this morning. My main point is this. My main point this morning as we are in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30, it is this. The kingdom of God will be full of people who completely trusted in Christ and lacking even one sinner who didn't. Say that again. The kingdom of God will be full of people who completely trusted in Christ and lacking even one sinner who didn't. Please follow along this morning. As I read in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and, and, to, and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate, we, we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, 
I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Main point, the kingdom of God will be full of people who completely trusted in Christ and lacking even one sinner who didn't. Point one, Jesus calls us to strive to enter through the narrow door now. Jesus calls us to strive to enter through the narrow door now. Now. As we begin, as we begin with this passage in, in verse 22, we see that, that Jesus is traveling, he's making his way to Jerusalem, and, and the time of his crucifixion is still to come. It's, we're not quite there yet. But that's ultimately where he's headed. Luke, Luke is giving us a little bit of a foreshadowing here. But we see that Jesus is traveling around from town to town to town, and, and, and he's, he's teaching. Of course, we know that's what Jesus did uh, up to this point. We, we've just um, experienced a few chapters of Jesus' teaching, and we're about to experience a few more uh, chapters of, of, of Jesus' teaching. And as we've spent the better part of a year or two years, or <laughs> I just lose track of, of where we're at. A better part of a year or two years, a year and a half in Luke, where we've experienced Jesus' teaching so far, where week in and week out, we've, we've listened to Christ's words in the Gospel of Luke. What has stood out to you? I'm asking anyone to raise their hand, but I want you to think about that. What has really stood out to you? What has really impacted your heart? What has really changed in your heart and in your mind about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Maybe it's not a completely different theology or worldview, but maybe, maybe the Lord just made it just so much clear that the holiness of Christ, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the intensity of what it means to follow Christ. The, the, the fact that Christ is calling disciples to abandon it all to follow Christ. You know, people say, you don't have to you don't have to give up something to follow Jesus. I'd say amen. You've got to give up everything. You've got to give up everything to follow Christ. He says you've got to hate your life. You've got to be willing to be divided with, between your family. This is the intensity with which Christ is calling us as disciples. And if we're honest, that's not an easy pill to swallow. We live in a culture that, by and large, talks about easy believism. What I mean by that, 
is that following Christ is just this little easy decision. You, you can come in a room and, and, we, and we can like get it all, you know, turn down the lights, put on the pad, you know, you get the guy in the back playing the pad and he gets a super emotional environment and a super charismatic preacher that, 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 that knows how to lean in in the right moments and kind of give the right voice inflection to, to, to manipulate you and then make you this little easy 30-second prayer to say, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. And certainly the Lord can work through that, and the Lord can, can work through even the most foolish means to preach the word and save a sinner. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, by and large, in our culture, the overwhelming norm of what it means to follow Jesus is to say a prayer and walk an aisle. And we see Jesus here in the gospel. He's, he's really digging in, explaining what it means to follow Christ. This is exactly what it means. I mean, it really is as simple as trusting in Christ alone for salvation. So it's incredibly simple. It really is. I don't want to make too much of that. But trusting in Christ means dying to self and trusting in Christ. And that dying to self and casting yourself fully at the mercy of Christ is a big deal. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about counting the cost. Like Matt and I are going to go back to back. Sermon's basically saying the same thing. And Jesus is going to say the same thing twice. Like you're not going to build a building without first counting the cost. Jesus' teaching can be a, a, a rather tough pill to swallow. And here, as Jesus is teaching, he's traveling, he's going to village into towns and he's journeying. Perhaps one of who has been listening to Jesus' teaching, concludes, well, I'm hearing what you're saying about what it means to be a disciple. And, and, and I have a question, Jesus. Um, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? Because, because I know what I believe, Jesus, about what it, what it meant for someone to be saved and what you're talking about what it means for someone to be saved is a little different than my opinion because yours seems to be a little more intense than, than what I thought. Being a, a person of God, a child of God, a son of God is very different than what I was thinking. Um, so I, I just have a question. Will those who are saved be few? And now, again, he's, he's traveling to Jerusalem here. So I, I want us to consider this morning that, that his audience, I think, is, is certainly Jewish. Those whom he's, he's preaching to and ministering to right now are certainly Jewish. We're going to see that as this conversation kind of continues in next week's sermon. But, it, but as, as, as we think about that, as we think about that, why would he come to that conclusion? Well, consider some of Jesus' other sermons, such as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 20, Jesus, Jesus tells the crowds at that time, the Jewish crowds at that time, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I've said it before many times. But for the Jews to consider that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the experts in the law, the, the, the most moral citizens of the time, the, the, the best of the best looking people, these guys looked, at, they, 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 they looked, they looked at all on the outside. They looked good. They talked well. You, you would have respected them. I would have respected them, certainly. And Jesus comes in here saying, 
Your righteousness must exceed their righteousness. And to look at the crowds, by and large, who are poor and uneducated, and to say, your righteousness must exceed these guys over here, the guys who got it all together, they would have thought, it's impossible. That's impossible. That's why Jesus, in Matthew 7, 14, he says something similar to this passage here in Luke 13. He says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. A few. A few find it. Those are the words of our Savior. We consider the world, friends. Look around. Look on social media. Look at the news. Look at your workplace. Maybe look at your family. Look at those you associate with. It certainly seems like few know Christ, doesn't it? It certainly does. The reality is there were, there were a group of people who were certain they would be saved from the wrath of God and brought into the kingdom. They were certain. Those were the Jews of Jesus' time. And the Mishnah, specifically in Sanhedrin 10.1, it says this, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. And these are they that have no share in the world to come. He that says there is no resurrection of the dead prescribed in the law, and he that says that the law is not from heaven and an Epicurean. By and large, the Israelites believed that because they were Israelites, unless they were uh, guilty of some of these heresies described in, in uh, the, uh, Sanhedrin 10.1, that they would automatically receive eternal life, that they would be saved. And they were also certain, as it describes later, that other than proselytes, that Gentiles would certainly have no place in the life to come. And so he comes. As Jesus is talking about building his kingdom, and Je Jesus is constantly preaching about the kingdom and what it would be like, that there would be Gentiles there, and that, that only those who would take up their cross and follow Christ would be there. That only those who would die to, their, die to themselves and be with Christ would be there. He's not mentioning anything simply about ethnicity or nationality, but only faith in God. He comes and he asks Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus doesn't answer his question immediately, does he? Instead, he exhorts the individual to strive to enter through the narrow door. To strive to enter through the narrow door. We think about this, this door. I mean, there's nobody who, who's making a house. And they're talking about the front door of their house, the door that everyone's going to enter in. And, and they're thinking, like, there's, there's no trend. I've looked on social media. I've looked at all the influencers. And I'm telling you, nobody's looking at their front door and making it narrow. No, they're not like, I want a narrow door and I want about it yay high. I want, it, I want it to be extremely, nobody does that. Why? Because no one would want to enter through such a door. 
Nobody, nobody would hum, want to humble themselves to, to, to get through this door. And you know, I mean, you got to kind of suck it in a little bit. I mean, maybe some of you don't, but I would. And you're just kind of, nobody was going to humble themselves to go through such a door. No one. No one at all. Everyone wants the wide door. And Jesus talks about this again other times in, in the Gospels. You've got this wide gate. You've got the wide road that leads to destruction. You've got the narrow road that leads to life. Narrow always references humility. Nobody wants to repent of their sin. Nobody wants to die to self. Nobody wants to humble themselves like Christ humbled himself. That's what Christ did. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. When we trust in Christ, we identify with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Dying to our sin, being raised to eternal life, to the glory of God. This word for strive, to enter the door, the narrow door, is agonizomai. We've talked about this word before, but, but, but it, it's the word where, where we get the English word agonize. It means to strive. It means to make every effort. This is not a passive type of action. This is an intense action. There's great intensity here that Christ is calling. I want, if, if you're writing down a, a word, I want you to write intensity. One could even say, be obsessed with. I want you to be obsessed with entering through the narrow door. It's an obsession. It's agonizing. It's striving. Making every effort. It's fixing your eyes on something and saying, I must have it. Think, think of, you know, the, the, the classic movie. I don't know if kids watch it anymore these days, but I, I watched it growing up. Anybody watch the old school? Not the new school, but the old school Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Anybody? There was this point in which Willy Wonka, he has this, he has this giant candy factory, and it's magical, and it's amazing, but no one's ever been in it. Nobody's ever seen it. But he's, but he's in, inviting, what was it, five different people, I think, He's got five golden tickets. They're going to be sent out all through, through the town. He's got these candy bars, and, and, and everybody's looking through the candy. And everybody's like agonizing to buy the candy in order to find a way into the factory. I mean, do you remember the scenes of, of obsession? I've got to have it. A single-minded, eyes-on-the-prize mentality. What does that look like? What does that look like? What does it look like to strive? Well, friends, Jesus is not calling for works righteousness. He's not. In John 6, 27 through 28, Jesus says this, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered him, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe 
Christ calling for and, 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 and calling to strive to enter this narrow door? It's not strive to give enough money. It's not strive for church attendance. It's not, it's not, it's not striving just to read your Bible for the sake of reading your Bible. It's not striving to cut out XYZ, XYZ, XYZ out of your We're going to talk about that. But mainly it's this, that you would strive to see Christ. That you would strive to know him as he is. I mean, that we would make every effort with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our emotions, church, all of our intentions, every fiber of our being would be dedicated to knowing and seeing Jesus Christ as he is, to trust him, to adore him, to desire him, to find joy in him, to worship him, to strive for that. It's not passive. It's not, I I will sit back in my chair and I will wait until Christ taps me on the shoulder and and initiates the conversation. Christ is sitting here saying, yo, I'm revealed in this word. I'm, I'm revealed in this book right here, Christian. Strive to open it up, not for the sake of reading and works righteousness, but strive to see the risen Christ. Strive. Give it all up. Every passion of this world, every passion of the flesh, lay it all aside because it doesn't compare to the worth of knowing Jesus and to trusting Jesus and worship Jesus and to desire Jesus and to find joy in Jesus. It doesn't compare. Not at all. And to be a follower of Christ Jesus is to strive to know and follow Jesus. Rest? Absolutely. Because as we strive to see Jesus, we, 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 we understand the very first thing that we can understand is that we rest in him. We rest in his work. We rest in his life. We rest in his sufficiency. And the more we can rest, the more we strive to know him because the better we, the more we know him. My pastor growing up used to say this, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. It's an old hymn. It's true. And it's not because every day with Jesus is is wealthier than the day before or problem-free than the day before or more peaceful than the day before. But it's in the midst of our poverty, in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of our strife, friendship strife, work strife, marital strife, family strife, problems in this life. Oh, Christ comes in and he sustains us and he intercedes for us on the throne. He fills us. He gives us joy and he gives us hope and he gives us peace. And the more we open up the word of God and we see that, we see just how true it is. I mean, why do we pursue everything else in this world? Why? I've made a a lot of money in my life and you know what? I don't say that to brag. I tell you to say this church, I say this church, money doesn't bring an ounce of peace. Not an ounce. Not one bit of peace. Don't pursue it. Your job, I've got my dream job. Doesn't produce an ounce of peace. Not one bit. Not one bit of joy. Not one bit of hope. I've got a great family, a great wife, 
They're great. I love them. They don't give me hope. They don't give me peace. There's one thing in this life, church, that gives us joy and peace, and that is Christ. That is it. There's no plan B. There's no other option. It is Christ alone. Christ alone. And when we get that, when we get that, we will strive to know him the best that we can. If we don't know that, we will not care. And if we do not care, we will see where that leads next. We must make every effort to know Christ and to see Christ as he is, like, like Peter in Luke 5. They get a glimpse of Christ's glory. Remember on the boat? You get a glimpse. Just a glimpse of Christ's glory. What do they do? They drop their nets. They follow Christ. They left everything. They left their business. They left their livelihoods. They left it all because they see Christ. And in that moment, they're changed. I must follow him. What about, but continuing in Luke 5, we, we see the leper that he's had leprosy for so long and, and, and he approaches Jesus, he risks it all. Leper shouldn't go anywhere near anybody, especially this rabbi. Leper, he, he sees Jesus. I, I must seek him out. He seeks Jesus out and Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged Jesus to make him clean. He risked it all. Jesus made him clean. What about, again, continuing in Luke 5, about, about this, this is paralytic and he's got these friends and he realizes that this is paralytic. He must be Seen by Christ. He must come to know Christ. So they bust through, they bust through the ceiling and they of this crowded room and they, they get this paralytic down at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because they need they strive for this man to know Jesus. What about the centurion in Luke chapter 7? Jesus says, I've never seen such great faith. Not even in Israel have I seen such great faith. What was it that he trusted Christ? That he trusted Christ. And understood that he is who he says he is, and he believed it with all of his heart. What about the sinful woman who humbly sought out and worshipped Jesus with her tears, putting alabaster on his feet? Striving to know Christ, striving to worship Christ. Jesus mentions her faith and how she was healed. She was made clean. What's the common characteristic of the, and I could have given you 10 or 15 more we've talked about over the past few years. What's the common characteristic? They sought Christ and they found him. They strived after Christ and they found him. Christ promises that every person who seeks after him will what? Will find him. You want something guaranteed in this life, Christian? Strive to know Christ you will find him. Strive to know Christ, Christian. Strive to know Christ, kids. Strive to know Christ, teenagers. Strive to know Christ, middle age. Strive to know Christ, older people. You will find him. You will know him. And he will sustain you. And he will change you. And he will make you like him. I promise you that. He promises us that. 
This isn't talking simply, though, about salvation. We don't just strive to know Christ for the purpose of salvation. Walking with Christ each is day by day, striving to know Christ better and to be more like him, as Paul tells Timothy in, in, in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee what? The pursuits of life, money, wealth, prestige, etc. Instead, pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Christian, fight. Fight. Fight to know Christ. Fight to be like Christ. Obsessed with it. Not to earn it. Not to earn it. But knowing that in Christ, it has already been earned. It has already been won. And knowing that there's nothing better than being more and more like Christ. And knowing him. Friends, in this world with its ever-available worldviews, it has probably never been more important to strive to know Christ. I mean, with these, with these phones right here, we, can, we, can, we have access to everything. I mean, 200 years ago, I mean, how long would it have taken to know that there was a war in Ukraine? We know it in minutes, seconds even. This world is throwing everything it has to, uh, this, this, this war, this war that we're not seeing, it's throwing everything at us. It's never been more important to open our Bibles and strive to see Christ. It has never been more important to strive for our kids to know Christ. It has never been more important to strive for our neighbors to know Christ. May we be faithful, church. Because B, those that fail to strive now, point two, those that fail to strive now will never enter the kingdom of God. Those that fail to strive now will never enter the kingdom of God. He says, and in, in, in continuing in 24, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. When once the master of the house is risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Here Jesus does not immediately focus on the many that will be saved, but the many that won't. He says that many here, many will seek to enter and they will not be able to. Friends, last week or two weeks ago, I can't remember, last time I preached, we talked a great deal about the patience of God. Oh, he is a patient God. Right now, this world has been experiencing the patience of God up until this point. But there comes a point where the door is shut and God's patience is over. 
And it is time for justice. It is time for wrath. It is time at that point where the holy king, the holy judge, will be revealed most clearly for who he is. And at that point, it will be too late for you to repent and trust in Christ. This is a sobering reality. But it is true. People often would look at a passage like this and, and say that it's the one of the scariest passages in the Bible where someone thinks that they know God but comes to find out they don't. It's very sobering. See, those that wait until the master has shut the door to start knocking, start begging, those are the ones that will seek to enter and not be able What Jesus isn't saying here, Jesus isn't saying that there's going to be people eventually who are at that point where the door is shut, where they're desiring to know and worship Christ as Lord. He's not saying that. There's not going to be a point where in, in hell where everyone's praising Jesus because he's so good and because he's so merciful. Instead, there will be a just simply a definite period of time where people will see that the door is shut and they're headed for the wrath of God, that, that all these things in their life they rejected. The fact that Christ is king, the fact that Christ offers mercy to all those who repent of, and trust in their sin, but people who, who conceal the truth, they conceal it, they don't worship Christ, they don't follow him, they're apathetic towards Christ. The, the whole life has been nothing but pushing it away. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been sitting here for years. You've been hearing the word of God preached, the call to trust, of, trust in, in, in Christ and, and, and repent of your sin, and you don't care. You just don't care. You care, more about, you care more about your school. You care more about your sports. You care more about sex. You care more about porn. You care more about the, your, your job. You care more about everything else. And you can come to church because coming to church is easy. Even when it rains. Christ isn't calling you to just come to church. He's calling you to repent of your sin and trust fully in Christ for salvation. To believe he is who he says he is. The ever reigning, resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. That is a Christian. That is not who is sitting here banging on the door saying, I don't want your wrath, God. I don't want to go to hell, God. I don't want weeping and gnashing of teeth, God. I mean, I'll say the prayer. You know me, God. Jesus' only response here is, I do not know where you come from. He's not looking for people who just simply don't want to go to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell. Everyone in hell doesn't want to be in hell. But they certainly don't want to worship Jesus Christ. 
But they do not want to be in hell. And Jesus says, I don't know where you come from. I don't know you. Jesus isn't like, uh, who are you again? Um, let me go check my registry. Maybe you're here. I'll, I'll be right back. No, Jesus with certainty says, I do not know you. This is not true of believers, friends. This is not true of believers. Austin and Eddie and I were talking this week. What's amazing? How intimately Christ knows those who are his. I want you to be encouraged because for, for, for a believer, this passage can be rather discouraging in, to a certain extent. You know, how do I apply it? But friends, understand this, that if you are in Christ, Christ knows you intimately and Christ knows you personally. I love this quote by, by a man named Mark Jones. Listen to this. He says, there is no Christian alive who has not had Christ mention his or her name to the Father Indeed, if you are a Christian, it is precisely because the Son presented your name to His, and now your Father. You strive to enter that gate, that door, the narrow door, to know Christ, to treasure Him, to worship Him. Christ opens up and He says, Come in, Brian. Come in, Doug. Come in, Cameron. Come in, Pat. Go on and on, and on. Christ knows who are his. He's presented your name to the Father if you are in Christ. But to those who are not in Christ, he doesn't. And there is no peace for you right now. None. You remain dead in your sins, and you will be shut out at that day. And, and, and it doesn't matter if you're like these individuals who you're going to try to attempt to, to appeal to Jesus. You know, these, these people appeal to associating with Jesus. Jesus, you came, and remember that time you came and, and you preached at my church? Remember that time we, we, I met you in the town and we kind of shook hands? Remember that time, Jesus? Go, go, you know, like, you know me. We, we had an association a, f- a few weeks ago. I, 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 we had the opportunity to, many, many of you know that Cameron and I have had uh, developed a, a friendship with, with Dr. Vody Bauckham and, and we, we took him to the support center, the Chick-fil-A support center to, um, to speak at their, at their devotion. So I, I was kind of his handler that day and, and we, and we, and we walked him around. So I was just kind of by his side and we kind of walked him around and it's amazing how many people would come up to him and they, they wanted to meet him. They wanted to shake his hand. They wanted to talk. And, and like all these people knew a whole lot about Vody Bauckham. Because they follow him on Instagram. They've heard, his, they've heard a few of his sermons. And so they're asking questions about his kids, who they've never met. Asking questions about his health, even though they don't know him. Asking all these sorts of questions and questions and questions. And I was, as I was driving him back to the airport that day, I was like, I got to know, man. What's it like to have all of these people who, who act like they know you and they know a lot about you, but they don't actually know you? And he was like, Honestly, at times it can be pretty exhausting. But that's what social media does, isn't it? It gives us this false sense of of association equals knowing. That's often how it is in the Christian life as well. 
We think that somehow because we're, 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 we're loosely associated with Christ, maybe we listen to some preaching or we attend a church or we have some friends that are Christians or we have family that's Christians, mom and dad who are Christians, that somehow we actually know God. Jesus isn't looking for Instagram followers. Jesus isn't looking for those that would just loosely associate them to their lives. Jesus isn't like a, isn't like a package that you're adding on to the new car you're buying. Jesus is looking for those that would love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what Christ is looking for. And Jesus calls these individuals who would appeal to their association with Jesus. He says, depart from me, you workers of evil. Depart from me. Imagine at that moment, the surprise that an Israelite would feel to find themselves out of the kingdom. Imagine that pill they had to swallow in that moment as Jesus was speaking to them. They were certain. They were certain they would have eternal life. And here Jesus is saying, no. Unless you strive to enter, unless you strive to know me and to trust in me and to repent of your sins fully and trust in me, you will not have eternal life. Instead, you will head to this place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. J.C. Ryle once wrote, Hell is nothing but truth known too late. Hell is nothing but truth known too late. Late. There will never be a truer place in all of creation than hell, where man is revealed as the pitiful, God hating, self loving, sin loving, self exalting wretch that they are. And where God is revealed as a holy, righteous, good, perfect, merciful, and just God that he is. It will all be on full display at that moment. And those who are in hell will see who they are most clearly and who God is most clearly in that time. And it will be far too late. And what awaits them? What awaits them in that moment? Immense sadness. Sadness. He said, in that place there will be weeping. Can you imagine the moment, friends? That moment where you die. And maybe you were deceived your whole life. And thinking that you knew Christ, but you actually didn't. And in that moment, the sadness you will feel. As you know, you're sitting here, man, Brian preached it that day, man. He preached it. Matt preached it. Tom preached it. James preached it. Pat preached it. There would be coming a day of wrath. And I did not heed the warning. Oh, you will be. <laughs> the floodgates of your tears will open up. 
for all of eternity. But not just that. There'll be gnashing of teeth. There'll be anger. It's not, it's not at that point where you will love God. You will hate God for eternity for what he's going to do to you. And in that moment, Jesus says, there'll be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Jesus is speaking of his final ultimate kingdom here. This final ultimate kingdom. Point three, those that strive now will have fellowship with Christ and one another in the kingdom of God. Those that strive now will have fellowship with Christ and one another in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, all the people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table at the kingdom of God with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We will be together, those of us who are in Christ. We will recline at the table. We will have fellowship together. We will be with God in his kingdom. No weeping and no gnashing of teeth but joy and peace and rest for all of eternity for what Christ did. That's what awaits us, church. Is there anything better than striving after that? That is eternity we're talking about here. This isn't a quick 15-minute meal and we're done and like we get back to life. This is what awaits us for eternity. Joy. And weeping and gnashing of teeth is what awaits for eternity for those who are not in Christ. So, will those who are saved be few? I think Jesus clearly answers that. No. There's going to be people who come from all over the world. North, south, east, west, black, brown, yellow, White, Ukrainian, Nigerian, Mexican, American, Japanese, all across this world, as Matt was talking about last week. This kingdom of God, it's, it's, it's comprehensive. It's going to stretch to the whole world. I mean, I mean, it says it this clearly in, in Revelation chapter 7, church. Revelation 7, 9 through 14, after this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, every tribe, and people, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes because they're pure, clothed because they've bathed in the, in the blood of the Lamb, they've trusted in Christ for salvation alone. They loved Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They strive to know him, strive to worship him. At that moment, standing in their white robes with palm branches in their hand, they will cry out in a loud voice that salvation, freedom from our sin, life everlasting, fleeing the wrath of God, salvation belongs to our God 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is what waits us. That is what awaits those of us who are in Christ Jesus today. Friends, I look forward to it. What about you? Do you? Do you know that you will be there, friends? Do you really know? Do you really know that you will be there? You might be thinking, this makes it sound like a coin flip. That I will somehow get there and I won't know if I've strived enough or if I've done enough. That is not how it works, friends. Christ says, seek me and you will what? Find me. Look to Christ today. See the mercy that he offers today. Look upon Christ and see your sins forgiven today. And watch him save you. Watch him bring you in through the narrow door and into his kingdom. I'll finish with this excerpt of Pilgrim's Progress that I think encapsulates what Jesus is getting at here. So in process of time, Christian arrived at the narrow gate. Now over the gate there was written, Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. He knocked therefore therefore several times, saying, May I now enter here, though I have been an undeserving wretch? If so, I shall sing his everlasting praise. At last, a serious person came to the gate named Goodwill and asked who was there, from whence he came, and what he wanted. Christian responded, I am a poor, burdened sinner coming from the city of destruction. I'm going to the celestial city that I may be saved from the wrath to come. I've been informed, sir, that the way to the celestial city is through this gate. Are you willing to let me enter? Goodwill replied, I am willing with all my heart. And with this, he opened the gate. As Christian was stepping in, Goodwill gave him a sudden yank. Surprised, Christian asked, why did you do that? Goodwill then explained, a short distance from this gate, there was a strong castle erected of which Beelzebub is the prince. From there, both he and his minions shoot arrows at those who come up to this gate, hoping to kill them before they can enter in. Then Christian said, I both rejoice and tremble. When Christian was safely inside, the man at the narrow gate asked him who had directed him there. Evangelist directed me to come here and knock as I did, said Christian. And that you, sir, would then tell me what I must do. An open door is set before you, and no man can shut it, responded Goodwill. I am now beginning to reap the benefits of my hazardous journey, replied Christian. But how is it that you came alone, asked Goodwill. Because none of my neighbors saw their danger as I saw mine, answered Christian. Did any of them know of your coming, inquired Goodwill. Christian replied, yes, My wife and children saw me at first and called after me to come back. Also, some of my neighbors stood crying and calling for me to return, but I put my fingers in my ears and I so started on my journey. That, my friends, is what it looks like to strive, to set your gaze 
so fixed on Christ that the rest of the world pales in comparison and you walk towards him looking to see him, know him, worship him, trust him, and to make his name known all throughout this world, no matter if no one else follows you. And Christ will sustain you and Christ will bring you, he will yank you as goodwill did through that door. He will bring you into the celestial city by his grace and mercy alone. Church, may we strive to know and love and worship Christ.